Sean, you find, you find this about dancer. Dancer keeps it real. <laughs> and you came in with the most energy I've seen in a long time for, for someone that comes in to teach someone that they're meeting, people that they're meeting for the first time. All right, welcome back guys. We are episode six of Taz Knows. Got a very special guest with me today, the legendary UFC Hall of Famer, Dan the Beast Severn. <laughs> so um, thanks for joining me, Dan. Um, well, thank you for having me. Round two. Round two, yes, round two, yes. Uh, you were here back in, when was it? April, I think you were back. Well, you probably remember that quickly. <laughs> well, to me, life on the road is, has not ceased or slowed down, even though I might be getting a little bit older, but I continue to move all around this country of ours, and uh, there seems like there's a great deal of need of, of knowledge, and yes. that's really what I'm here about, trying to share some of the things that I've learned over the decades of being a competitor, and, and also sharing all the knowledge that all these various coaches have shared with me decades ago, and, and a lot of these uh, uh, individuals that are now gone, as we, as I made a tribute to uh, Doug Blueball earlier today, because we were working on the Russian two-on-one, and I always tell that people that I learned from the guru himself, the man who went off and competed at the 1958 uh, World Championships over in Russia, who brought back this new routine known as the Russian two-on-one. Yes, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so. I'm doing this, uh, you know, obviously I've been doing MMA for, for 11 years. I wrestled in high school, all that good stuff. So I'm That's why I like you that much more there, because you're, you're a wrestler first off. And that's, yes, and I, you, you, didn't, you didn't know that, but, but that, that's the reality. I, I do, there is a, a certain brotherhood that wrestlers have that uh, a lot of people don't understand. There's a lot of professional wrestlers. They also have their own little brotherhood that's a little bit, little bit different there, but uh, amateur wrestlers, especially Ramtraverse that had some success behind them, they're a special breed of individuals yes. and they, they all think somewhat alike. And that's what fascinates me about your story. And you know, when, uh, when I saw the email, like, would you like to have Dan Severn come to your gym? The first thought was like, this is a joke, right? Dan Severn's not really looking for a place to, to have a seminar. So, you know, I, I reached back and I was like, all right, how do I make sure that this is actually Dan Legit, Severn? Yeah. You know, because it's like, it's, it's just, you don't come across an opportunity like that where you open up your email and you see someone like Dan Severn looking for a place to have a seminar. You know, so obviously, like, it wasn't until you called me the day of the seminar, like, hey, I'm outside. I was like, okay, this is... This is Dan Severn, you know? So it, it always fascinates me because, you know, my story and people that listen, I, I was kind of thrusted, and we talked about it a little bit um, before we started recording. I was kind of thrusted into this position. Like I, I wasn't, in my mind, I wasn't done with my training, nor was I done with competing. By the time coaching and running the gym kind of presented itself to me, you know? So there was still a lot of things that I wanted to work with. I was still working with my, I still work with my wrestling coach, my high school wrestling coach, uh, Coach Kress. He, 40 years of, of training um, under Daggerberg Academy. He's, he's big up north. Uh, he's big on catch wrestling. He used to do boxing. So he's kind of the, oh, wow. the guy that, that got me started with all this. We, you know, I didn't see, I think 12 years went by without me seeing him. And then we reconnected and we started training again right away, you know? And 
one of the things that fascinates me about your story is that you, you've done everything. You've done amateur wrestling. You've done... Well, there's, there's amateur wrestling, which was my first, which is known as folk style here in the United States. But then by my freshman year in high school, I, I jumped into freestyle wrestling. And then by myself, I jumped into Greco-Roman wrestling. So, uh, you know, I was, a cross, I was cross training or being the term that they have used since I think the mid 2000, I don't know, 2005, 2006, mixed martial arts, where you're mixing different elements. I, I've been a mixed martial artist since basically my uh, freshman year in, in high school. Like I said, going from folk style to freestyle to Greco. And even then when I jumped into college, I took a judo class. And then uh, by my sophomore year, I'm doing sambo and uh, just doing other things that are just different elements of grappling, whether they were geese or non-geese. And then, uh, and it was, uh, I mean, I'll say some of it was rather comical because I, in, in the judo class, I had two instructors. I had an Asian instructor who absolutely just hated me because I didn't conform totally to the judokian way. And when the American guy, he literally, when I, when I, you know, I'm acing every test and I can destroy everybody in the class and yet the Asian guy is trying to fail me because I'm not doing it his way. And, and uh, basically I appealed, to, uh, I appealed to the other instructor. He actually came and watched me at some of the home matches and saw where I was doing exactly what he said. I'm actually incorporating judo into my, my wrestling skill set. And he saw where we doing it. And uh, I mean, he basically helped me get, get through the class, stuff like that. And uh, then like when the class was done, he's kind of like going, hey Dan, uh, how would you like to go and watch a judo event? I'd never been to one before. Sure, jump in this van. I jumped in the van and I think we drove down to Tucson, Arizona at the time, I was going to college at Arizona State. And uh, he goes, well, now that you're here, how would you like to compete? I'm like, well, I probably would, but I don't have a gear and all like that. Ta-da, the gear and all that was, was there. But uh, I mean, I look like a, a barbarian because I did not know all the, the pleasantries of bowing before we get on the mat, bowing to your, this judge over there, bowing to that judge there, bowing to this judge here, step on this line. The, the, the referee says, Hajime, Haji who? What, what is Hajime? <laughs> here he comes. Time to get it on, I guess, here right now. So, and I'm just like a wild hillbilly. Just said, you know, he, as soon as he grabs me, it's like, I no longer thought because of what, we, what we were doing even earlier today, we talked about point of contact. The moment he hit that point of contact, he grabs him, it's like going, I go rush into a one, bash. He just, but they had never seen anyone do like a Russian two-on-one in judo like that. And then they grab this and I'm throwing belly to bellies, belly to backs and uh, you know, headlocks and uh, things that they had never seen before. Like going, we need to tame this little wild animal out here. So, I mean, it just with each, after each match, the coach like going, no, Dan, you need to do this. Bow to these guys before you destroy them like that. You know, <laughs> maybe bow afterwards too. You know, show a little respect there after you destroy them, you know. So it, it was very comical how things fell into place for me, but uh, my life has kind of like been that almost the entire time to, to go from all of these amateur wrestling things into the judo, the sambo, and then even morphing into first, my first profession, professional wrestling. Then there's jumping into the, the cage fight world. I, I always call it cage fight world because most know it as mixed martial arts today, but they don't know the predecessor of uh, NHB, which stands for No Holds Barred. So that's how the Ultimate Fighting Championship first began. And I'm, I'm big about education because most Americans are not educated in the history of their sport. So I'm always trying, you better understand your history to know where you want to go and where you want to fit in if you want to at all.
And that's one of the big things with me is like, people, this generation is totally different. And, and I, I always sound older than what I am to my students. They, they, everyone's pointing fingers at me saying I'm the old guy, but it was, I, I love history. I love history of professional wrestling. I love history of, of where MMA started and stuff, you know? So I got super excited when I saw the email with you and then some people were like, who? I was like, look them up. And as soon as people started looking you up, then it, I think Turbo Scott, Google his name. Google his yeah. name. <laughs> I use those lines. It's sort of the terminology. I go because I, I go to a lot of these appearances. Again, the younger generation, they walk by, they'll see the shiny objects, they see some belts, yeah. and they'll see some pictures. They look at the pictures. They look up at you. They look up. And I go, that you. I go, well, it's a younger me, but yeah, that that's me. And like you did this. I go, well, yeah. Google my name. <laughs> you know, you got that thing called the cell phone. Google my name. Go dance ever amateur wrestler. Dance ever professional wrestler. Dance ever MMA. Dance ever. I go. You might be surprised all the things that will come up because I've been around a long time. Yeah. So with that longevity that you've had as a competitor, because you've competed in everything, you've had plenty of matches. What keeps you going? Because I've seen so many younger guys that they'll either too afraid to try something new or they don't stick around long enough to, to en actually enjoy the sport and get, reap the benefits of it? I, you know, what keeps me going, I, I tell you, I mean, a, a number of things. First off, maybe it's because I'm at the tail end of my career. So I keep saying it, or I keep <laughs> thinking. But then somehow something new happens and it kind of extends on a little bit longer. I was very fortunate early on in my career that uh, I achieved a lot of success early in life. You know, to know that I started my amateur wrestling career in 1969. Now we look, think about that. Some people what we watch are going, how old is this guy here right now? <laughs> but the, the fact that I could say I've competed in, my, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, 2020 we're talking seven different decades right now that i mean find another more durable person that can say that but then you can still have an intelligent conversation you don't see cauliflower ears you don't see a broken nose you don't see somebody who's got all punched and beat up stuff like that because i knew what my skill set was i wasn't going to win this contest of the fisticuffs but you got to be within arm's range to punch, kick, knee, elbow. I was always good about saying just outside of that range, baiting them to come a little closer, to bait for them to commit to something. Then I would close that distance and clinch them, whether that was out in the middle, jam them up against the cage wall, or take them down. And then it's kind of like, hello, and welcome to my world. <laughs> You shall never see the light of day again. Because, well, again, because I always tell people, if you do, if I do allow you to get loose, you're going to smack me. And getting punched is overrated. <laughs> I'd rather, I always tell people, I'd rather be the giver than the receiver. And I have a big heart, big forgiving. <laughs> but again, the, what people like to be, they want to be entertained, and that's part of the, the atmosphere that they like going, is this guy is legit, look for real? About as real as it gets. I think we were talking the last time um, you were here that you actually got into professional wrestling first, right? You yes. did pro wrestling first. As of 1992, 
A new rule came down from the United States Olympic Committee to allow athletes to be both amateur and professional simultaneously. Thus, we had uh, the dream team in basketball. We had all these NBA players that were actually playing on the Olympic team for the first time ever, and you know, no one came close to us. So uh, uh, prior, I, I was actually approached earlier in the 80s by some professional organizations, but I turned them down because had I turned pro at that point, I would have lost my amateur status. My amateur status meant too much to me, so I, I just turned them down at that time. 92, I, I took off with it as a 92, and by 94, I jumped into cage fighting world, so I had a dual career running simultaneously, which was not easy to do. I mean, because I'm working for Vince McMahon, WWF at the time, now known as WWE. And I was working for the Ultimate Fighting Championship, but I was not exclusive to Vince McMahon or the WWF. Uh, I was not exclusive to the UFC, and I could work for anybody. And, uh, and I did. I was working for the NWA, because that was the first championship belt ever uh, put on to me. It was a national, NWA stands for National Wrestling Alliance. And as far as I know, I'm still the only professional wrestler ever to have a professional wrestling title belt carried out to the octagon cage in UFC number five, I had uh, the gentleman's name was uh, Dennis Carluzzo from uh, uh, from New Jersey. He carried the belt out. He was uh, he was the fifth man, and I had four guys on my sides, and they were actually the show. They were all dressed in stars and stripes because I was a professional first. So I wanted to put on a show. I wanted to get, gather attention. So these four guys that were on, on the sides, Dennis was again. He was he was dressed as a promoter, suit tie. He's he's carrying the belt. These other four guys, stars and stripes uniforms, and they got these t-shirts all knotted up and they're swinging around and they're throwing around the crowds, getting the crowd all whipped up into a frenzy. I just told them, I go, you keep everybody away from me. I said, my goal is tonight I must destroy three men in the next two hours. Because a lot of people don't understand what product they watch today that's known as the UFC and mixed martial arts. They only, it's, it's a card and you're just one match on a card that has you know maybe five or six matches on two back then it the the whole card was eight men tournament format and if you want to be the champ that night you had to beat three different men at, at that time women were not competing yet in the ultimate fighting championships so again it's not that i'm trying to be sexist or anything like that it's just like i'm just stating facts really what it was exactly yeah so the that night that you, you had to beat three guys yep and so basically, as soon as, I, as, soon as, I, as soon as I won, I'm holding up both the NWA title belt with the UFC title belt practically 20-some years before Brock Lesnar ever came along. Even try to do that. Was that the night that you suplexed that guy? There's that one clip. Uh, actually, no. UFC number four was my very first UFC ever. UFC number five is actually when I, I knew I had... Uh, UFC four, I was a last-minute fill-in is all I was. So I ended up getting there and I ended up being, being the, the runner-up uh, to hoist Gracie, and uh, uh, by contract, they can't get rid of me. <laughs> so I got to come back. So uh, for UFC number five, I took 35 days out of my life where I told my family that, that I have to leave you here. Uh, Dad has to go off somewhere else, and I have to train exclusively. I'm staying by myself. Well, I'm, I'm training with other people, but basically I was basically like a, a lone person the entire time because I, I need to desensitize literally when if you if, if there was ever any footage and, and there's not if there's any real footage of, of what I did people would be blown away at how much I worked out 
in that, that 32-day span. And uh, I mean, I was a cardiovascular machine, but I was pumping iron. I had the cardiovascular, but then uh, I'm, I'm doing stuff at uh, Grand Canyon University. Uh, a friend of mine, a fellow amateur wrestler friend, he told me about a gentleman by the name of Richard Hamilton. That was not his real name. I did not find out about, about that till later, later on in life. That's a whole, whole different story. But uh, when he found out I was there, he was actually teaching a martial arts class and had business class, stuff like that, so that if you really wanted to run a true uh, martial arts dojo, he, there's all these different business elements there to it, and then uh, also then the actual class itself. So I was going to his classes, and they'd have like 30, I don't know, 32, 35 students, and I was basically rolling with all 32 or 35 from Liddy for the whole one-hour class. I might just take a, a, a one-minute break here, just roll over, grab a towel, wipe some sweat off me, grab some water, and I would simply just roll right back out into mat. And as I rolled out into mat, I'd either roll, roll either belly down, sunny side up, curled up in a fetal position this way, curled up in a fetal position there. I closed my eyes, and the name of the game was You Touch, We Start. So they could come in from north, south, east, west, or stand up at the top, drop me down, but the moment that they touched, game on. So, and a lot of times they didn't realize that I was grappling, but I was grappling while my eyes were closed because your other senses become so much more better. And there was no, there was no punching allowed in this other than it was 100% go submission grappling with simulated strike. So we might roll around, but then I'd be going like a hammer strike, but then I would, I would actually say it and then bring it up and I'd touch him in the head and like going, oh, you can see the eyes get big, like, oh, dude, I'm glad you didn't actually do that. But again, it was, I was showing control that I'm going through these motions or I go palm strike, form smash. And like, again, cringing because I'm, I'm weighing like anywhere from 250 to 265. I'm doing like a one hand, a one arm, push up on their face, push on up and then drop, and I drop down and then stop right there. It's like, and they would see that form come across their face and go form smash. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> that's going to leave a mark. So, but, but by having that kind of control, I didn't take the punishment that uh, a lot of these other athletes, you're not going to find too many men my age with the number of kind of matches, you're not going to have this kind of an intellectual conversation. The conversation would be more like, ah, 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 you know, I got a few more twitches or I got to reach the world going, Dan, I said, oh, okay, no, because they've been hit in the head one too many times. And again, I, I equate this even to the sport of boxing. Just because I put a headgear on you, it protects your ears from being cauliflower. It protects your nose from being broke. It protects you from being cut. But there's this gray matter, and there's called the brain, that each time you get hit, it gets sloshed and sloshed. And it only gets sloshed too many times before it turns too jello. And I would tell people that, you know, right now I've weathered the storm well, but time will tell. So. So as far as longevity of your training, because you said in the, during your seminar, you've had two training camps. One was five days, the other one was 35. Well, no, actually, no. The five days I never even count because that was just pure comedy. <laughs> I did one for 30, 32 days for UFC number five, and one for 35 days for the ultimate ultimate. Now we look at, there's only four people in the world that have over 100 cage fights. I'm one of those four cats. There's only three that have over 100 victories. I'm one of those three. Now the right part is, I faced the other three 
I defeated the other three. And the closest one to my age is 12 years my junior. So when you think about someone that is 12 years older than you, with no training camp, beat all these people, and I'm lifetime chemical free, I'm a freakosaurus. Again, I just, you know, dance art does come up with a lot of new, new words there too, but <laughs> it actually makes sense, a freakosaurus, like a freak of nature. <laughs> But I'm an old, but, I, but I'm an old freak, you know, an old freakosaurus because it's a dinosaurus, you know. You know, because I see, like in, in today's UFC, they they argue about, oh, they only had three weeks to get ready, or they only had twelve weeks to get ready, and they have just these camps just when they're fighting. Yeah. You know, so and and I've always told told people because I had a coach, I forgot which coach it was, but he always told me there's a difference between a fighter and a martial artist. A fighter only trains when he's got something right coming up, and a martial artist trains all the, all time. the time. Yeah, he's you prepared know. all the time too because you just never know the element when something, when danger is going to happen. Yeah. So, where do you think? Do you think that's the difference of where the sport started evolving to what we see today? Is is the fact that it became such a almost a money-driven, fame-driven? Well, in the beginning. You gotta look at, in the very beginning of the no holds barred era, it only had two rules. Yeah. No biting, no eye gouging. And even then, if you violated those two rules, it wasn't grounds for disqualification. They might simply say, hey, don't do that again. Give him his eyeball back. It was his in the first place. You took it. You know, I, I mean, I say that kidly, and yet I know of some people that have lost their eyesight due to having their eye raked. They didn't take their eyeball out, but, but, I mean, but they did lose their eyesight. And there are even, in today, because there's some of the athletes that they, they tend to keep their hands out to where they tend to, sometimes they get eye poked. Did they, are they looking to do an eye poke? Probably not. They'd probably rather punch it in the face or punch it in the eye as opposed to an eye, eye poke. But uh, you know that is one of the things that does happen is just all depends on that individual and how they, their training camps, what they do. But, you know, the eye pokes are still there. What would you say is the, the highlight of your competitive career? Highlight of my comp competitive career was the ultimate ultimate. The reason I only say that because when you look at, I, I hold a couple, a couple different records in, in the UFC. First off, um, in UFC number five, I came back, I, I trained for my 32 days, and I, I destroyed three men in, in the record time. They, they'd never seen three men gone through as quickly as, as what I did. Matter of fact, they didn't, they're not a well-oiled machine like they are today where they have all this footage in the can so that if a match goes short, now we can go back to, well, this is what, this is what Dan Severn's training camp was like before. Okay, these are a few other interviews we did with Dan. They had all that kind of stuff, whereas when they're doing a live pay-per-view, they have basically two hours that's, that's carved out for this. When all of a sudden the match goes one minute or less, and they're planning on for at least 25 to 30 minutes, that's kind of like, oh, uh, go to our website, uh, buy our t-shirts, buy our ball caps. Uh, did anybody find uh, you know, that mouth, that, that tooth that got uh, kicked in the face? And get I mean, they, they were lost in the beginning. So it had, even the USC had to go through its own growing pains of learning how to be a well-oiled machine. And it's gone through, what, three different ownerships, or maybe it's four now. Because I know Horian Gracie and Art Davey, they were the original uh, originators of it. Then they, they sold over to Bob 
Meyerowitz, who sold it on to uh, the uh, to, 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 to to the. the yeah, no, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, she turned sold to the Fortita Brothers. Then Fortita Brothers didn't sell them to this new Chinese conglomerate. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. it's a Hollywood people, Chinese conglomerate of you know, Heinz Fifty Seven, all kinds of stuff right there. So it's hard to say who actually really owns that company now. Yeah. But Dana White is still the face of it because he's still kept on board as the president. President. Yeah. So let's uh, fast forward to present day. You're still traveling the country. You're still going everywhere. Still love teaching something as basic as the sport of amateur wrestling because it's still near and dear to my heart. And there's, the thing is, I, I'm an impact instructor. I can make a difference. A lot of times, I'll simply just come in there. It's kind of like, I could come in there and just simply just take over the show or just let me sit back and watch you practice. And I could give you a list of add this, this, and this to it. Because a lot of instructors, they don't have, they don't have a good flow. They... A lot of instructors, they were once a high school wrestler themselves. Yeah. Uh, they may never have gone out to college. So basically, anyone that is a high school wrestling coach or junior high wrestling coach, they're doing it for the love of the sport. They're not doing it for the monetary because there is no monetary. <laughs> they're lucky if they see 1000 to 1500 bucks, and by the time that the coach does, he buys this kid a pop over here, he buys this kid this over there, he basically has spent more money on what he has to do because a lot of kids don't have nothing. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's a definitely a, a very much a blue-collar sport. But it's still my first love to, that I like to teach because I, I, I look at that, the sport of amateur wrestling teaches you a lot of great life lessons. And the reality is you're only going to ever get out of it what you put into it. Same way in life, if you, if you want to be on the sidelines and bitch and moan and complain, you're gonna have a miserable ride of life. And most of those people, I don't even want them by me. I'm gonna <laughs> simply disassociate, put them off to the side, because I, I wanna surround myself with like-minded individuals because we have the old can-do spirit. <laughs> and that makes for, for some of us a very lonely, I, I went through that, you know, I, I had friends that didn't wrestle, I had friends that were always trying to get me out of the gym, always trying to get me like, hey, just come on out and, you know, let's, let's go out, you don't have to train today. And That's the hardest part, if you, if you are goal driven, yeah. your friends are going to be some of the worst people, they don't want you to succeed because if you succeed, you make them look bad. And that's when they're going to say, hey, Sean, let's, let's go drinking. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. And it's like, in high school, okay, smoking pot, LSD, uh, all this stuff was, was around. And, and they're like, damn, let's, let's go to a Friday night party. I, I would say, I'll stop by. And I would stop by, and, they're, and, they're, and all these guys, you know, at the time, it was called trash can. Basically, they'd have a, a trash can with a liner in it, and everyone was bringing a fifth of this, fifth of that. they just dump it all in here. they throw some chunks of ice and fruit and stuff like this, and, and you stir it all up, lay the line out, and just, it was like, you know, rotten gut, whatever, okay? But all they cared about is that they were getting a little bit drunk, silly, and then they would do even more sillier type of things. Well, then, well, Dad's not there drinking. Well, why aren't you, come on, Dad, aren't you a man? I mean, so you get, now they question your man card. Yeah. Aren't you a man? I go, well, Sure I am, but I'm not drinking because it's going to affect me. I have to compete tomorrow. I'm only going to be here for a certain time, then I have to leave. Well, why are you going to leave? You, are you pussy or something? No, 
I need to leave because I need my sleep. I'm going to compete tomorrow. What are you going to do? I mean, I wouldn't say that, but in my mind, I'm thinking, what are you going to do? But in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to go do this. And so, you know, I would go, I, I, I go sometimes, sometimes I go, but then sometimes I go, and why put myself through this bullshit experience? I won't go. And, uh, and now it's kind of like, right? Because it's kind of like when you look, I'm coming up on my 46th class reunion. Or excuse me, 45th class reunion coming up this summer. Now, will I show up to it? Probably not. Again, I, not because I mean I'm in touch with the people, people I want to be in touch with. And that's not being mean to anybody else. It's kind of like going, if you weren't my friend in high school, I doubt if I want to show up and see you 45 years later, you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, 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 Sean, you find, you find this about Dan Sever. Dan Sever keeps it real. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what we really like about you, Dan. <laughs> yeah, so again, I just, because I, I have a couple of my buddies, they've already asked me about that. I go, probably not. You know, because if, if I can go teach a seminar or do something else on that day, I'll go do that. Or if I, I'll spend time with my kids or my grandkids, stuff like that, because they're the ones I see on a much more regular basis and who I, I have a vested interest in wanting them to achieve success. Because I know they don't have an idea right now of what life is about. I mean, as they get older, again, I, I say, yeah, my kids, yeah, they're learning more because you know, they're in their, their mid to 20s, maybe latter 20s. I even got a couple of my kids right now that are in, in their early 30s right now towards like going, sure, they've been in the workforce a little bit longer. They understand things a little more. And the older they get, they're like going, dad, smarter and smarter yet. The older they get, they're like going, dad, how'd you do this? How'd you do that? I go, there's sometimes you do it because you just don't sleep. That's how you do it. Or you drink enough caffeine. It gets you from point A to point B, you know? Because uh, one of the biggest things that stuck out the first time I met you was that you came in uh, for a seminar on a Saturday, and then you told me that you were in, I think, Phoenix the Thursday before, and you drove from Phoenix to Michigan to pick up your stuff, and then from Michigan down here to Chicago, yeah. and that just, it, it blew my mind. It was like, how? I, I complained just driving the one hour that it gets me to get to the gym and here you are going right across the country and you came in with the most energy i've seen in a long time for for someone that comes in to teach someone that they're meeting people that they're meeting for the first time i won't tell everyone what my magical elixir is right now <laughs> but let's, let's let's face it i mean i do a lot of driving but anyone that really knows dan Sever knows that i do things in a very methodical way uh, everything that I do, it's going to sound kind of bad here, but I'm going to say it anyway. Some, everything that Dan Sever does somehow has to make dollars and cents. Sure, I can fly, but by the time I get on that flight and I put all the boxes that I need, someone still has to come and pick me up, get me there, I got to do all my stuff, then get me back up. It, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. Let's not that I drive these drives because very rarely will I do just one thing 
when I drive out. This is this was close and convenient because I just came from Howell, Michigan. So I'm looking at maybe a four and a half, five hour drive. That, that's a, that's a, I could do that standing on my head driving down the road. That means nothing because a lot of people, they, they won't drive 15, 20 minutes. But if you want to look at this in the scheme of things, there's a lot of people that they will be born and raised in an area. They will, they will live up, live, go to high school, grow up, get a job, and their horizon, and they will die all within 50 to 100 miles of where they were born. Lots of people have never been outside their state unless they live on a state border. Then they might go over and say, see, they, okay, I live right there. Uh, I, for example, I, you know, Coar, Michigan is 13 miles from the Indiana border, so they might go, oh, I went into Indiana. <laughs> but a lot of people, they don't travel. And I, I, I know a couple of people that right now I live in Coldwater that they worked in Indiana. They haven't been to any other state. They came to Michigan and they, now they, I say I helped them get a job, stuff like that. And now they're there. They're, they're living a better life. They got a better job. They're making a better wage. And like, they always say, Dan, I have you to think. No, no. I said, I helped. I just, I just helped open the door. You still had to fulfill the, the element of working and going to work on a daily basis, but they're happy at camp because where they were at, it was a miserable existence. And you know, now they've, actually I think sixfold is what they've done for their hourly wage and stuff like that. So again, it just, I've had people come to me for a lot of different reasons. Competition is just one, one part of it, but if people don't believe in competition, I tell them that you don't, a lot of people don't realize you're in competition whether you like it or, or not because life is competition. You know, we compete to have the best jobs that we possibly can have. You compete to have the best home that you possibly can. You want to compete because you want to have the best mate that you possibly can. So life is nothing but competition. When people say, oh, I don't believe in that, that's a bunch of hogwash. Life is competition. And, and to me, it's like going, well, when are you going to stop competing? I go, the day they throw dirt on my face. That's when I'll, and then even then, you better watch out in the afterlife. You know, <laughs> I might come back to haunt you still. That's Awesome to hear that because that's been my thing since starting the podcast. Like this is totally new to me, but you know, people kept pushing me to do it because I, my thing is because my, my competitive career was cut short and I keep saying, you know, like kind of like you never say never, you know, and some of my students ask me when's, when I'm going to go back to competition and stuff. I was like, when I find help in here and I can focus on a training camp, then, then I'm totally for it because it, I had fun while doing it, you know, it, it was frustrating. I took myself a little bit too seriously and I wish I would have had more fun with it the time that I had, but I thought I had more time, you know, so you never know, you never know. You're exactly right. Well, again, you, you, you have other quality character attributes about you because you're a sincere type of a person. And that, because I, again, I only ever met you the very first time was the last time I was here. And, and the fact that I'm here, here again. And then again, this was one of the most unique uh, seminars that, that I think you probably ever hosted yeah. because you had had the mad scientists over here is like going <laughs> just let them go <laughs> and uh, and that's where this all kinds of cool things happened there was only a couple little little re repeats but it's only simply just to get them warmed up because we just went to the the public type drill because I'm I, I do a lot of seminars but I I go through that seminar uh, I go with that pummeling drill because a lot of them just don't understand what this pummeling will do for you. A striker always needs space to strike. And simply by showing how people how to throw this, some of those striking things that Dan ever does, 
it was either something, to, something how to throw a strike, maybe successfully actually land one, but then move into that clinch, jam them up in the cage wall, or just get that clinch out in the middle, because the moment that that clinch is occurred, you've neutralized 90 plus percent of their arsenal. And I always tell people that, watch any of the combat sports now, watch a boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai, karate, kung fu. As they're, they're out there, they're throwing punches, knees, elbows, the whole nine yards, they always end up in some type of a clinch. And then the, the referee gets out there and goes, no, 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 fellas, or no, 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 ladies, move on back. None of this clinchy, huggy type stuff here taking place. We want to punch, kick, knee, elbow. So as many times as they say not to do this, they all end up in it. I just try to show people that this is how you get into it in the first place and then how to capitalize it from there because you just can't unless you learn some of the close quarter combatives. And what I said about that was I used the analogy that you had Conor McGregor who fought Cowboy uh, uh, Cerrone. And then also Conor McGregor punches Cowboy uh, Cerrone in the nose with his shoulder. As soon as that, that happened uh, that night, my cell phone explodes and all these people are calling me up and they're texting me like, did, did, did Conor McGregor finally take a seminar from you? I go, I go, I go, no, he didn't. Uh, had he done the, a seminar with me, he would have done this, 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 this follow up. And they're like, oh yeah, he probably, oh, he still sucks. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was kind of funny that we have some of the things that, that they said there because I teach close quarter combatants because once you're in this clinch, how to punch with the shoulder, how to jaw jack, how to, again, understanding the rules. Big John McCarthy, you could, He'd be one of the great person for, for you to interview, to simply say, you know, is Dan Severn the most whacked out minds that you've ever had to referee? Because he'll, he'll say that, that he's never seen anyone like me, how I use my mind and how I've used the rules to my benefit. But then all of the people that, who have made up these rules, they have never been a competitor. But I, at the same token, look at all the different ownerships of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Were any of these people competitors? Other, I mean, Horian Gracie was, but he was just, I think, into maybe just his jujitsu, but then I don't know if he did. Again, unknown to me. Was he back in Brazil and was he part of this Gracie challenge that I heard about so many years back? I, I don't know. I just know that, and, and when it came to any kind of ownership of Bellator, is there any, any ownership theirs that uh, climbed the cage? Nah, nada. And there's a difference between people that actually climb in the cage that have done it and have not. And that's where we need more referees and more judges who actually have had past experience because they understand what's going through that athlete's mind, other than someone's fist or elbow or knee, that they understand what's going through that mind and they're what that athlete is willing to endure before you wish you really stop the match. So amateur level, because I used to run, run shows, amateur level, I would always err on the side of safety because these are guys that are just starting, just starting their careers where if you're out there as a pro match, there's money, there's a reward. So I'll let you take a little bit more. I ran one show once where the guy, it was an amateur event. And the guy, I, I wasn't the referee, it was one of, one of my other guys, and, and he, was a, he was a trainee ref. And as far as I, I was concerned, he made the right call. But the guy continued to bitch and moan and gripe to anyone that would listen to him. 
to the point that I had enough. I went to his opponent who just beat him just you know, less than half hour, 45 minutes ago. I go, are you willing to do another match with this guy? <laughs> and he goes, sure. And I go, and I go, what I go, here's your lucky day. You've run your mouth quite en enough. Your opponent will fight you again tonight. Here in the next, whatever, 20, 30 minutes, you know, you're going to be probably the last match of the night. And, and oh, oh, yeah, I'm going to do all this. Well, the exact same thing happens. I said, said I'm the referee now. So as he's being pulverized, he's on the mat. I lay down on the mat. And I'm over there kind of picking my fingernails. And as he's being pulverized, I go, you know, I'm not going to stop this match. You best tap out and you better save your own bacon because I'm not going to stop the match. And he's like, okay, 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 okay. Okay, so I'm like going, you know, don't be a dumbass. These referees are there to protect you because you're not that sharp. You know, and you probably can't afford to lose any more of that gray matter that's between your ears here right now. So, again, you see Dan Center just goes off story here, story there, but I got, I got stories for everything because I've lived a, a couple of different lifetimes compared to most people. No, that's awesome. That's why I get excited to this day. Like, I woke up excited um, to hear these stories and just to see from a martial artist standpoint, your your creativity on the mats the, the way that you just move and flow and even we talked yesterday about how we were going to how the, the seminar was going to be run it was like we'll let them flow and you'll pick things from there i don't see that anywhere everyone wants answers like how do i do this how do i do this how do I, what's the perfect move that doesn't have a counter and you talk we talked today it was like everything has a counter you know and, and that's i i don't think people have that creativity that you have to, to just realize that there's no set ways to do certain things and you just gotta find what works for you, what works against the, the type of opponent that you have and just use the foundation that you were taught and learn different ways to use it. I mean, I, can, I would tell people, because that's part of the thing I do is like, if you gave me three of your matches, within three matches, I could, I could write up a pretty good uh, breakdown of what you should be working on because I'll see what I feel like, what your strengths are and I will feel what I, what I feel your weaknesses are to the point that I might even recommend certain types of, of weight strengthening type of things or maybe cardiovascular or maybe that you might not even be at the right weight class. There's a lot of things that I, I put when I go in there. I, I did this for amateur wrestling. It's, you gotta, hardest part is I had to do this for my own matches. And, and even in your own matches, people don't look at it critically enough. They just look at your match, oh yeah, I look pretty good out there. No, 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 no. You gotta you got look at the, the, the critical aspect of how am I moving? Am I moving in the right direction? Am I doing this right? Am I doing that right? You, the hardest person to ever be critical upon is yourself. It's almost better to let other people critique it and to come up with things as opposed to you doing it yourself. But I'm really good about critiquing matches and, and being really brutally blunt and honest with people. To the point that I'm like going, yeah, dude, you should just find a whole new professional altogether because this isn't your cup of tea at all. <laughs> and I had done that one and I go, like, what else am I going to do? I go, well, whatever else you do is going to have a much longer career than your fight career here right now because you're going to be simply pulverized, but you may not know it because someone will have beaten your brains out of you at that point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I always finish up with, uh, with the same question for everybody. And, and with you, I'm, I'm real cur curious about your answer because obviously you've made a living out of it. What has training done for your life? Like how has it shaped the way that you live your life today? 
Well, I mean, I'm, I've, I've always been structured, but that, that uh, actually stems from even before ever being involved in the competition, just uh, growing up on a farm, because you learn real quickly, uh, you have to take care of other things. Um, I had to take care of the animals before that. I'd be taking care of, you know, mom would be in making, uh, making a breakfast, stuff like that. So you had to go out and take care of, you got to feed all the livestock, water all the, all the livestock. Uh, not just once a day, twice a day. In the morning, it's easy because morning hits morning. You got to do this all before you get taken care of and you got to do it before you, you got to catch the bus. Uh, and then uh, the hard part is the second time around because you're not like a normal student. You're not just coming home after you know, class gets out at 3 o'clock or 3.30. You have a practice to go to. Oh, no, you have a away game to go to, uh, uh, away meet, or all-day tournament. And you, you may not be getting home till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, but you still got to go out and feed and water the animals. You still got to go out and milk Peggy the cow and stuff like that. So, I mean, there, there are certain things that you ha still have to do twice a day. So, again, that mindset. But, I mean, you know, getting right back to it, it's like, I'll continue doing what I'm doing for as long as I can, even when I get to be that crotchety, real old fart there, and I'm like, hey, you kids, get out of there, and stuff like that. I have my cane pointing to them, stuff like that. You kids don't even understand how to spell wrestling, let alone do it, you little shits. And, you know, that'd probably be my own grandson, so I'd say that too. <laughs> so, but, but I mean, but there'll be merit to it, you know, because I want them to succeed. I, I probably will be that crotchety old fart there at some point in time, but uh, hopefully I'll be a comical type of one. I'll be wearing my plaid shirt and my checkered pants and uh, <laughs> my bow tie, and I'll have my three strands of hair all <laughs> curled over just the right way, you know. Well, thank you, Dan, for the knowledge on the mats and uh, the conversations that we've had after, after the training's over. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to You, you learn more things in, in a, a nice little conversation. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll just plug uh, my website, yeah. danseverin.com. Severin is spelled S-E-V-E-R-N. danseverin.com is my website. There's all my social medias that are on there. So if you want to uh, touch base with me, because um, I, again, I, I look at, the, at this juncture of life. I, my, one of my goals here is I will continue teaching up until uh, 70, which is only seven more years uh, that I'll be doing that. So it's like, oh boy, time's going by fast. But then I, you know, during the course of all this, I'm still going to be a motivational speaker because I always tell people and I use my own life as my tool and, and other people that I've helped to influence to give them also that, that can-do type of spirit. I always tell people I'm just good at lighting fires underneath people. They have to still accomplish it all, but uh, if, if you can hold them accountable. Hardest thing is setting a goal setting a realistic goal and then put the steps into motion to where now you can do it. A lot of people, when they think they set a goal, all they're doing is, it's kind of like, it's almost like an impractical thought. I think I'd like to do this, but because there's no real commitment to it and they don't really know how to go about doing it, it'll never happen. So if you set a realistic goal, you have to have all these little baby steps that, that, that get you towards it. You know, if you want to, if you want to do something, you know, the biggest thing, like most, most Americans, you want to lose a little bit of weight. You want to be a little bit better shape just so that you have a better quality of life. Well, if you don't get off of your proverbial ass and start moving, you're not going to do it. If you don't simply stop eating all that junk and stuff like that, 
it's not going to happen. It's, there's not, rock, not any rocket science. It's not like you got to do this special diet here or that special diet there. Get up, get moving. Get out there and just shake, rattle, roll. Just do something. More than what you're doing right now. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I look forward to training with you again one day and talking again. Um, any last where people can find you if they want to book a seminar? Well, well again, just danceverin.com. Uh, they'll show you the different ways of, of contact the Dan Severin. It's got my office number there. It's got my uh, uh, email address. So that's probably, email is probably the best way of, of contacting me. So, but, uh, you know, just rest assured that uh, the beast shall continue his adventures around and, and make it a difference in a lot of people's lives. Amen. Thank you, Dan.